0: Hello and welcome to Future Building. I'm Matthew Aitchison and I'm Professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC. In this podcast, we take a broad look at buildings and building in contemporary society and what's coming down the pipeline in the future. Over the coming year, we'll talk with invited guests and experts in the field, where we'll cover news and trends along with research and developments in the industry. Future Building is proudly sponsored by Building 4.0 CRC. In this episode, I interview Jose Torrero Cullen to talk about fire in buildings. Over the past few years, building fires have captured international attention. Tragic incidents like the Grenfell Tower fire of 2017 in London show us not only the weaknesses in our thinking about the subject, but outline a longer path to reforming the building industry. Jose is a leading expert in fire safety engineering. He is Professor of Civil Engineering and Head of the Department of Civil environmental and geomatic engineering at university college london jose's accomplishments around fire engineering are literally too numerous to mention he's worked internationally in a selection of the world's most prestigious universities in europe the usa and australia he's participated in numerous high-profile research projects and published literally hundreds of scientific papers and articles he's consulted widely to industry and government And importantly, Jose has implemented and carried out training of fire safety professionals all around the world. Competency of fire professionals, as you'll hear, being a particular focus for Jose. Something we focus on in this interview are Jose's experiences as an invited expert on high-profile fires. Some of the fires that we talk through here include the 9-11 World Trade Centre collapses, the Notre Dame fire in Paris of 2019 and the 2019-2020 Australian bushfires. We close with the Grenfell Tower fire of 2017 and the ensuing Royal Quarry, to which Jose has provided expert advice. There are many gems in this conversation. Some of my highlights include the concept of design by disaster or the notion that bushfires can be fought, which, in Jose's view, is masking some more difficult solutions to the problem or that the rise in building complexity has resulted in a kind of innovation wake that has tended to disable the abilities of the professionals to effectively assess fire safety performance. We discuss the well-known reports and inquiries into the building industry, where Jose identifies a shift from regulating the process to regulating the people. And we close with the idea that we might eventually need to consider the radical simplification of buildings as a way to deal with complexity and safety it was a fascinating conversation for me and i hope it will be of interest to you i spoke to jose from his home in london in july 2020. jose welcome to the future building podcast Uh, we're here today to talk about all things fire and buildings Uh, and just to start For those of you who aren't familiar with fire engineering, I I wonder Jose, could you briefly tell us a little bit about your discipline?
1: Uh, Yes, thank you very much for uh, the invitation to join you. And um, what is fire safety engineering? Fire safety engineering is a discipline that provides uh, a fire safety strategy for any piece of infrastructure, whether it's a public building, uh, housing, uh, industry. Uh, you have a fire safety strategy that uses components of the building and a number of features or uh, countermeasures like sprinklers or smoke detectors to try to achieve an objective, You know, which is to basically have everybody safe within the building and reduce potential property damage uh, in the event of a fire.
0: Great. So what kind of things, if you were a student of fire safety engineering, would you be learning or what would you be teaching as a teacher?
1: Uh, fire safety engineering is a very misunderstood field because people generally related to firefighting and, uh, and they don't really recognize it very much as, a, as an engineering discipline. Now, it's an interesting discipline in the sense that from all the engineering disciplines, it's probably the closest one you know to architecture in its philosophy because effectively it covers every component of the building design. So when you teach a fire safety engineer to be able to create a fire safety strategy, you have to make the fire safety engineer aware of the whole breadth of different things that can be introduced when you're designing and building a building. So a fire safety engineer has to understand about architecture because they have to understand how buildings are laid out so that they can, for example, get people out in a careful way, and appropriate way. It it is also uh, has to be knowledgeable in structural engineering because the heat affects the behavior of the structure and therefore you have to make sure that the structure withstands the fire. You don't want a building collapsing on people. Uh, you know they have to understand about fluid mechanics. You know building services because you have to manage smoke. Um, they have to understand about the way in which you manage security in a building because that affects the way in which people enter and go out of the building and that obviously affects egress in the event of an emergency so in general you know every component of the building has a function but also has to be part of the fire safety strategy and deliver the safety of the building so in that sense that sort of broad generalist vision of the architecture Mm -hmm. when it comes to design is a very similar uh, vision that fire safety engineering has with the addition of all the sort of technical components associated to the fire safety strategy
0: yeah great and and so just to follow up on that one too, do you find yourself teaching uh, the management of risk also in that engineering discipline
1: Yes, I mean the design of a, of a fire safety strategy starts by doing a proper risk assessment. So you have a building design or a proposed building design and that proposed building design brings hazards into the building. And uh, some of those hazards are direct. So, for example, when you introduce, uh, you know, combustible insulation, you know, for the purpose of reducing energy consumption and other risks are actually passive, you know, which is, for example, when you have an atrium and uh, the atrium enables the smoke to go from one place to another one unobstructed so in principle the the first step of a fire safety strategy is to conduct a detailed risk assessment of the design proposal and then start evaluating you know what are the components that either need to be corrected or mitigated and what are the protection elements that you need to put in place
0: gotcha so as as we heard in the introduction you've worked all over the world um can you tell us if the approach to your discipline is different in different parts of the world, or does it all stem from the same kind of thinking, as it were?
1: Um, that's a very interesting question because uh, on face value, if you if you look at it in a superficial way, uh, you would imagine that every country has its own building regulations and every country has its own approach you know, towards fire safety. Uh, Nevertheless, we are all dealing with the same physical phenomena. So, in principle, when you start breaking down all these regulations, you realize that in general, we more or less manage the problem in a very similar way, using very similar tools. Uh, There are certain philosophical differences. So, for example, there's the British school that permeated through Europe and generally places like Australia or South Africa, which effectively we rely very much on the structure itself, so compartmentalization. You know, of the structure is a key element of the strategy. So you give a little bit more weight to that. Now in the United States or Canada, the reliance is more on active systems like sprinklers. So you're attacking the fire and therefore that frees, for example, uh, the definition of space. And uh, so it allows you to have maybe more flexible space, but you have the add-on of the sprinkler systems that have to be implemented in everybody. So there's there's nuances, but in general, when you break them down fundamentally,
0: uh, we all more or less try to do the same things. So you get asked uh, to give professional advice into fire incidents all the time. And in the introduction, we listed a range of these. Uh, one that we didn't go to uh, into any great detail on was 9-11 and the collapse of the World Trade Building. Uh, this is obviously a, a very high-profile pro- case. What was your involvement in, in the analysis there? So uh,
1: there was uh, several facets to to my involvement in it. So uh, in regards to buildings one and two, there was an official investigation conducted by uh, the US government that was commissioned to the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. And uh, and they were to run, you know, with this um, uh, investigation and deliver uh, a forensic understanding of what failed. Uh, in In those buildings, now this created an enormous amount of uh, nervousness you know within the industry uh, because they felt that there was going to be a knee jerk reaction that was going to add a lot of uh, uh, unnecessary safety features so there was a massive consortium uh, of of uh, industry uh, formed in in Europe uh, that effectively funded uh, our activities to run a shadow investigation of the collapse of, of Walter Center One and Two that shadow investigation ended up merging with the official investigation, so we ended up being uh, part of the presentation of the official investigation so we the cross pollination was huge, so there was a lot of our work that went into the official investigation and vice versa so. At the end, we more or less agreed on the principles. Now, then with World Center 7, which was the third building that collapsed, uh, then I was involved more, uh, that was was more
0: an issue of insurance and money, so we were more involved on the litigation. So uh, I don't expect that we've got too many conspiracy theorists in our audience, but in case we do, can you explain why and how those buildings collapsed, uh, at least the short version of that story?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the the very basic version of it is that um, those buildings were designed according to certain principles of design that did not require an explicit assessment of the performance of the structures in fire. And, uh, and this is now, this is still until today, the common practice. So you use this concept of fire resistance, which effectively just simply tests components and assumes that if they don't fail in the test, then when you assemble them into the building, you know, then, then they will not fail. Now, the problem with that is that once you assemble components in the building, you have a problem, which is that structural elements heat up. And when they heat up, they expand. And if they are restrained, you know, by other structural elements, they produce massive loads. So the loads that get created because of the fire many times are just a function of the way in which the building was assembled. And none of our design methodologies incorporates that type of explicit assessment. So effectively what happened was that, particularly World Trade Center one and two, were buildings that were designed in a way such that you had this very rigid core, you had a very rigid set of perimeter columns, and you have this very lightweight floors. And it was a continuous system, every floor was identical. So when the fire started, the floor started expanding. They could not expand because they were restrained by the the tubular structure at the external tubular structure and by the core. And because they couldn't expand, then the floors buckled. And then the weights of of the floor that were buckling start bringing the columns back in. And that compressive force of the columns coming back in starts buckling all the other floors. And once the the collapse or, or the failure gets started, there was nothing to arrest it. So it continued propagating down. Most tall buildings will have rigid floors, will have bracing, will have all sorts of discontinuities, while World Trade Center 1 and 2 didn't have any. And that brought the building down. Now, the interesting thing you mentioned, conspiracy theories, the problem was that, uh, while we all more or less agreed on the basic principles, the magnitude of the failure was such that we couldn't explain the details. So a lot of loose ends were left in all three collapses, one, two, and seven. And uh, and the result was that because of a lot of loose ends were left, lots of questions kept being raised to the point that if they fueled all these conspiracy theories, because nobody could give the detailed explanation of exactly what happened. We understood the best the, f- the first principles and we understood what was the failure mechanism. But in many ways, we had very little idea uh, how to do it better, and that resulted in, in 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 many people speculating that there were all sorts of issues regarding conspiracies and so forth.
0: Thanks for that, Jose. Um, I, I want to go a little deeper into some of the case studies now and particularly some of the other high-profile uh, cases that you've been involved in or, or others that I think at least you, you'd be aware of. Um, the first of those is Notre Dame, uh, the Notre Dame fire of 2019. Last time we met, uh, we spoke a lot about Notre Dame. And I, I kind of find this story, uh, as everyone who, who saw the news breaking, heartbreaking and fascinating in, in equal measure. Um, and I'll just point out for, for listeners here that there's a wonderful uh, infographic journalism essay in the New York Times that we'll post in the show notes that, that really explains what happened and puts forward a really interesting timeline. And outlines in in some degree the heroism of the local fire services. Can I ask you, Jose, to walk us through this fire?
1: Yes, I mean the the, the Notre Dame fire is one of those situations that, um, if you look at it as a lay person, uh, it 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 evokes all these uh, feelings of having this great loss, and uh, and it looks into the heroism of firefighters that were trying to save as much as they could. You know, uh, during the, the 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 fire, when you look at it as a fire engineer, uh, I think the feeling is very different, and it is uh, quite a tragic uh, feeling because it is a complete failure uh, of our system in to a level that is actually almost an embarrassment. I mean, think about the concept. So here you have, you know, one of the most remarkable architectural gems um, of a country visited by millions of people every year of an immeasurable value. So this is, this is effectively like having, you know, an, a, an enormous jewel in there. Now that jewel is made out of highly combustible materials. And we knew that. So the timber trusses, the lattice that covered uh, the roof, uh, these were all uh, highly combustible materials, you know, 19th century um, construction, and uh, and this was perfectly well known. Notre Dame has been studied for many, many, many years, and uh, and the protection that this um, structure had was this very thin uh, lead tiles that covered the entire roof, and that's the mechanism by which you protected of uh, any anything that could attack. Uh, the the roof from the outside. Uh, needless to say, it is a roof, so the probability of having a fire starting in the roof is very limited. Uh, <clears throat> you had smoke detection in the roof, so in principle, uh, you should be able to detect a fire very, very early on. And the roof in itself, other than the roof itself, was pretty much void of any combustible materials or any possible ignition sources. So in many ways, this is how historical buildings are preserved. You consider and acknowledge the hazard that you have, and then you put the appropriate measures to make sure that you are not altering the structural system or the building itself, but at the same time, you guarantee safety. <clears throat> so the moment that you started a refurbishment process, then you, the first thing that was done was to remove the lead tiles, which effectively exposed the hazard now that you have the hazard exposed and this is perfectly obvious because it is a timber lattice and uh and that burns extremely well and uh so then then you you have revealed the hazard and uh, and your level of risk has increased dramatically so given the magnitude of the gem that you are addressing the type of competency of the people working in that space and the procedures that they should have been implemented should have been consistent with the building that you were addressing. You know, instead, there was very little consideration to safety beyond standard practices. And therefore, at the end, you introduce ignition sources that have not been identified so far, but clearly started a fire. Now, not only you started a fire, but then all of a sudden that revealed a chain of events. And the chain of events was that the staff you know, was not prepared to understand, you know, the fire alarm so they couldn't identify where the fire was. So it took them a very long period of time for the fire to be identified and localized. By the time they did that, they realized it was in a very complex place to access and the fire had grown to a level, you know, that uh, that it was really very difficult to manage. So at the end, you have a group of firefighters trying to address an impossible problem. Mm. And that impossible problem eventually takes as much as it's willing to take, and it gets only stopped by natural barriers, which are the stone walls and a number of different things, and the fact that the roof collapses. So the moment that the roof collapses, then the fire gets vented out to the air, and and actually the damage in the interior of the church is actually quite limited. But if you think about it, effectively it is an enormous failure of competence, an enormous failure of recognizing what is the risk you know and how risk should be managed in a building whose value is extraordinary it is not a, a a conventional building it is a building of extraordinary value and that element needs to be considered in the risk
0: analysis and all the procedures
1: that you're putting in place to try to protect the
0: building So this raises the question for me, is this just gross incompetence or is there something particularly unusual or even, and I use this term carefully, interesting about this fire?
1: Uh, There's nothing unusual or interesting about the fire other than the fact that it happened in Notre Dame. I mean, okay. this is uh, very typical of historic buildings because they mostly have very similar roof structures. And once a fire gets in the roof, then it's going to burn. What it is interesting about it is, uh, is that it, it introduces the, the, the traditional crash that we have when we're dealing with fire safety strategies because building regulations in general are all directed towards life safety. So the objective is to protect the people but they do not consider in an explicit way property protection. So effectively from a regulatory framework, you're not required to do anything for the building. And this is where the failure happens. So most of the processes are get implemented in the refurbishment process, and it's very similar with the Glasgow College of Art. You know, a building that burned twice, that should really never burn in the first place, but clearly should have never burned on the second. place. So so effectively, This we know that these things happen. But if it's a conventional building, you address life safety, and it really doesn't justify most of the times putting extra measures to try to address property protection. Industry does that very well, but not in public places. In public places, the focus is on life safety. So the interesting part about Notre Dame is that it highlights the weakness that is generated by the fact that we only focus on life safety.
0: And I suppose that that begs the question, and, and perhaps you've answered it to some degree already. Is could such a travesty happen again, or do you think this will put uh, governments on alert for this kind of risk?
1: Uh, look, for me, one of the basic principles. Uh, of design by disaster, you know, which is learning from failures through forensic analysis, is to effectively have the mindset to learn. So, I, I think that this is going to continue to happen because right now the mindset has not changed. There's still a perception uh, of how a fire gets controlled and fought. You know, there's still a perception of fire safety that is focused on life safety. And therefore people are not necessarily asking the right questions. And, and therefore your capacity to learn from the failures is actually quite limited. I think uh, you know, in, in the particular case of historic buildings, I mean, you've seen it happening in the last few years, there was a natural history museum in Brazil, you know, there was Notre Dame, there was a Glasgow College of Art, you know, these things happen on a regular basis and uh and, and they keep happening in a very systematic way and uh, and generally it is all if you break it to pieces it is all fundamentally the same problem it is the neglect you know of taking into consideration of the value of the building and uh and therefore the measures that are put are not intended to protect the building but they're intended to protect the people so i think that uh, i I hope that something is going to be learned out of Notre Dame, given, you know, given how extreme, you know, the, yeah. the loss was, but, yeah, but and, I'm and not no convinced.
0: doubt the expense as well.
1: Yeah, but I'm not necessarily convinced that it's going to create any fundamental change in the way in which we look at historic buildings.
0: So a bit of a change of gear now from, from buildings and prominent buildings at that, uh, before COVID, The big story from where I'm sitting, at least, here in Australia, was the 2019-2020 bushfires or the so-called Black Summer. Um, Some figures can help us put this into context. There were 34 deaths, I believe, over 18 million hectares, or that's around 180,000 square kilometres, which is, uh, for listeners uh, where you're sitting, Jose, in in London, uh, that's the size of England, Wales and one-third of Scotland, was burned. Uh, This is an enormous fire. Uh, Around 3,500 homes were destroyed and many, many more uh, non-habitable buildings. Stepping back from that, uh, there was a lot of uh, discussion. Uh, Everybody was shocked by this. Um, I don't think anyone had expected something of that magnitude. Certainly, we expect bushfires in Australia, but not of that magnitude. And it really raises the question about what can we do? Perhaps bringing this back now to buildings, uh, we've seen stories subsequent to the bushfires about bushfire proof, and I'm using air quotes for listeners here, bushfire proof housing, uh, not to mention blame being attributed everywhere for what went wrong and what we could do next time. I was really keen to, to press you and ask you, what's your view on this whole problem?
1: Yeah, so let, let me let me park on the side this whole thing about you know bushfire safe buildings uh, and any building that is fire safe, you know the reality is that we know perfectly well how to do that. All you have to do is make a box out of metal, you know, and uh, and put an internal ventilation system that is based on pure recirculation, and that's perfectly fine. The problem is that this type of fire safe buildings. Uh, generally come with all sorts of other disadvantages that we don't want, so we don't want to live in a metal box and um and and I think therefore we make concessions that create vulnerabilities in the buildings, and then the buildings eventually are part you know of what the involvement is in the event of a fire. so I think that that um the solution of creating a bushfire safe uh building you know it is it can only take you that far. And, and I think it is more about having a robust uh, building approach towards buildings that are in bushfire prompt areas. Now, but that really is not the problem. I mean, the problem actually is the bushfire in itself. And what are we doing wrong? And why are we seeing more and more of these fires? And, um, and, and why are we so unsuccessful at being able to manage them once they happen? Now, the first problem and the reason why we are unsuccessful at uh, at being able to manage them appropriately is because there is this perception that bushfires are fought. And once again, you know, once a fire reaches a certain magnitude and it has certain characteristics, the capability of a fire brigade to be able to deal with this type of event diminishes dramatically. So if you manage to capture the fire very early on and you manage to fight it in a certain set of conditions, you know, you might be able to control it. So you have a window of opportunity that is very narrow. You know, once the fire gets out of control and it acquires certain types of characteristics, then then really fighting the fire is pointless. Well, all you have to do, and the role of the fire brigade becomes one of containment in the sense that you're trying to protect certain key assets to enable people to evacuate, for example, or to protect buildings that could potentially enhance the fire. But it's a very, very minor role. Nevertheless, is given all the importance and all the investment and all the effort and the resources going to that space. The problem with, with bushfires is that they are a long-term problem. You know, we make decisions of land planning, of urban development, you know, we make decisions of substitution of vegetation that effectively breaks the natural cycle of how bushfires uh, occur, resulting in conditions that enhances the bushfires. Now, obviously, if you add to that global warming, you know, or the potential for climate change, then clearly that is a further alteration of the process. And all these things are very long-term processes that effectively requires a political continuity that enables a strategy that keeps us in a direction that is safe. So, for example, reinstated native species into a space that has been completely altered by agriculture, for example, can take decades. It's yeah. a very complex process that has to be introduced very slowly. So that political continuity that effectively leads us in directions that affect land management, urban planning, and so forth, are effectively the the main elements that create the conditions to have a fire that goes out of control. And what is instantaneous political response is, let's throw more money at the firefighters, let's put more equipment on them, without recognizing that at the end, the impact that that has on the outcome is negligible.
0: So does this mean, Jose, that we are just going to see more and more and more of this until we see that kind of political continuity? Or is there, is there anything? Uh, I'm sure there's a very big debate in, in your discipline. Is there, is there anything we can do in the absence of that kind of political leadership and that kind of long-term political continuity?
1: It's very unfortunate, but, but the, the answer is really no. Because if you think about it, you know, once you have the fire, the fire sets up a set of conditions that has altered the way in which, for example, water is transporting the soil. It has altered the vegetation and what comes out, you know, the, the species that grow almost immediately after a fire tend to be very, uh, the type of species that are very capable of spreading a fire. Hmm. So, so effectively, the cycle is a spiral down. And once you've gone into this cycle, you've eliminated the robust elements. And what you get is this sort of rapid growing uh, species that are very capable of spreading a fire. So so effectively, you enter a cycle that unless you have a real serious intervention, uh, you're never going to be able to move out of it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to escalate. Okay, What what it's going to mean is that effectively these events are going to be recurrent. Now, the magnitude is generally determined by weather conditions and so forth. So it's going to change, you know, for year year after year. So maybe only once in a decade, you will get these horrendous um, events like the ones that you got last summer in, in, in Australia. But the reality is that if you go back every year, Australia has the same problem. And depending on the weather conditions, how much it rained through the year and so forth, the outcome is slightly worse or slightly less. But at the end, we 've already entered that cycle, and unless you actually put the long term political will to try to change the process and forget about the fact that your patch is firefighting, you know then you're not going to break the cycle and it's going to continue to happen, and every once and so often when the weather conditions are right, you will get a disaster
0: yeah. Um, Changing gear back again to the buildings, Um, next is our really high-profile case, and I want to take uh, a few more minutes to go through this. Uh, And, of course, this is the Grenfell Tower fire of 2017. Uh, I might just give our audience, in case some people have been living in a cave, uh, a bit of an overview. Uh, The fire started in the early hours of June 14th sorry, in 2017, and burned for around seven hours intensively uh, and resulted in around 72 deaths and just as many hospitalizations. And in many ways after that, Grenfell Tower has become the focus of several other such incidents, um, which fortunately didn't result in as many deaths as Grenfell uh, but could have been equally catastrophic. And I'm thinking here about a similar fire at the La Crosse building in Melbourne in 2014 where composite aluminium panels caught fire. It was a tall residential building. Uh, That incident sparked an inquiry as well. And I'll come back to that report in in some way in a few minutes. But, Jose, you were involved in the Royal Inquiry uh, on this building, on this fire, and that was chaired by Sir Martin Moore Bick. Can you walk us through the major chapters of the event and the incident? And I'm aware that you are involved in this, and this is an ongoing case. And so if there's anything that's sensitive, then please, obviously, uh, spare us that. But uh, I think listeners would really um, uh, appreciate your insights into this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll try to walk you through the things that are public, you know, through the phase one report of the public inquiry. And, uh, and and effectively, what happened was that you had a perfectly foreseeable small kitchen fire. And uh, that small kitchen fire, which didn't even progress to a fully developed fire, uh, effectively ender- ended up igniting the cladding uh, of the building. Now, the cladding then spread the fire along the building at a rate that was quite significant, but not extraordinary. Buildings like the address in Dubai or the torch uh, have burned much, much faster. It burned more or less at the same rate as a lacrosse fire in Australia, which for example in the case of Australia allowed the evacuation of everybody with no casualties. Now in Grenfell uh, what ended up happening was that as the fire was spreading, um, the, the the standard practice in the United Kingdom is that for tall buildings, uh, the what we use is a defending place or stay put strategy. In other words, people stay in their apartments and as I, I said at the beginning, the European tradition is to protect by compartmentalizing. So effectively, your apartment is surrounded by fire-resistant walls, and those fire-resistant walls are capable of withstanding the burnout of the fires. So in principle, if you stay within your apartment, you should be safe. Uh, You know, one of the experts of the inquiry uh, showed some statistics and they showed that in the last 10 years, the London Fire Brigade had attended something of the order of 10,000 fires in, in high-rise residential buildings, and they had only had to evacuate the building twice. So even statistically, you know, the, the defending place strategy is a very well-known and very uh, sort of robust commonly used strategy. So what ended up happening was that the firefighters failed to recognize the implications of having an external fire spread and therefore maintained for several hours the stay put or defend in place strategy. So the communication towards the people in the building was to tell them that that they should be staying in place. And therefore, nobody, you know, only the people that disobeyed the orders evacuated the building. And, uh, And everybody who actually followed the instructions remained in the building waiting to be rescued. The result is that the firefighters, again, failed to recognize that the fire had taken an amplitude that was out of their capabilities, and therefore they could not control it. So the fire continued to burn around the building, and uh, and eventually affected most of the building itself. And everybody that stayed in the building found themselves trapped by the smoke that was penetrating through the windows as the fire was propagating upwards. So so effectively, uh, the 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 final conclusion of it is that you know, we relied fully on compartmentalization. We had included a facade system on a building envelope that somehow managed to be integrated in the building without respecting this principle of compartmentalization. And what nobody recognized is that once compartmentalization failed, you know, through a fire propagating in the external facade, the integrity of the fire safety strategy collapsed. And the moment that the integrity of the fire safety strategy collapsed, including the firefighters, every action that was taken was incorrect. So if you read the conclusions of Sir Martin Morbick of phase one report, uh, it is a very, very, very clear statement that the fire service is a component of the fire safety strategy in this particular case became the most important component and it collapsed completely. They were completely incapable of dealing with the situation.
0: I, I have had a, um, a read through the phase one report. And I, for those of you who haven't read it, uh, it is quite gripping reading, uh, very dramatic, actually. Um, and I have to say, as you introduce yourself, um, it was quite a chilling thought to realize that Things went so bad that it's a it's surprising that this really doesn't happen more often um You mentioned ten thousand other call outs but with only two evacuations uh h- How close do you think we were in some of those occasions to something this catastrophic
1: um it this is this is quite interesting actually because I think in many cases we were quite close and actually we did have precedence so the Lakinaw no fire. Uh, resulted in, in not as catastrophic of an outcome, but several people died only a few years before. Uh, and uh, so, so in many ways, I think we have been very, very, very close, uh, you know, to having major disasters in a number of places. And in some cases, like in the building in Shanghai, uh, there were several deaths. Uh, I think that um, that what is what is evident. Uh, you know, after looking at Grenfell, is that uh, this is one of those spaces where we have increased the complexity of the building without recognizing that uh, that that has implications. There is a wake to that level of innovation. We were driven, you know, by trying to reduce energy consumption, and that became the primary target of building of the mm. building envelope design. And uh, and we didn't recognize that by introducing these many layers of components. Uh, you know, the rain screens and, and you know, all, all, all sorts of other components, um, we were creating a level of complexity that completely disabled our capability to understand the fire performance of the systems. So what is interesting is, and the reason why it's very difficult to assess how close and why the outcome is so different, is that tiny little nuances yeah. in these incredibly complex systems seem to have a very significant outcome on the on the overall performance of the system. So effectively, you might have two systems that look almost identical. And uh, when you analyze it, analyze them with our existing very rudimentary tools, they seem to perform in a similar way. But then once they are in a real fire, one of them can lead to a completely catastrophic event, and the other ones can actually lead to pretty reasonable event, and that, and that is the case. So if I compare the torch in Dubai with Grenfell, that is pretty much exactly the same, the, the case. In, in the torch, the fire propagates all the way to the top, but it never manages to spread laterally. And because it never manages to spread laterally, it only compromises a few apartments. So the people evacuate those few apartments, and um, and the strategy in Dubai is slightly different to the one in the UK, because once you compromise the corridors, then there is a centralized alarm that gets everybody out of the building. So effectively, you have a narrow range of apartments that are involved. La Crosse is exactly the same. You have a system that enables you to get people out to small nuances. Now, yeah. in Grenville, what happens that you have a crown And the crown is only made out of this aluminum composite panels and the crown enables the fire to propagate laterally. So immediately that tiny little detail of having an ornamental crown in the building basically drives the lateral propagation, engages everybody. And the problem is that you don't have an alarm that detonates an an evacuation process and you have to wait for the firefighters to give you the instructions. So those tiny little nuances in an incredibly complex system changes the outcome from having no casualties to having 72 deaths.
0: Yeah, it is really incredible. And it is such a finely balanced and finely tuned system that it must almost be, for a layperson looking on from the outside, almost impossible to calculate without being extremely Heavy- handed I just want to step to the side for a second and and, and say that you know I've assumed you've seen your share of really horrific reports, um, and I'm sure that the material you must have seen in this inquiry was 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 very confronting. Uh, do you find it stressful to teach uh, fire safety engineering, and do you worry about PTSD and, and other such things with your colleagues and yourself and your students?
1: uh yeah i think i think that that, um i mean people don't recognize the level of responsibility uh that you are taking and uh particularly now for example it is extraordinary to see the testimonies of some of the people that were involved in the design of the building and uh and the level of stress you know that some of them undergo particularly because simple buildings uh, like like Grenfell are to be they are meant to be a very conventional simple in many ways you would say low cost building um, generally will involve in the in to a great extent in the design process you know very inexperienced engineers so what you have is individuals that were very young at the time where they made these designs but nevertheless they are responsible for delivering the safety. Of a building that at the end ended up killing a lot of people, so there there is an enormous concern, you know about about this because uh, not only is the enormous responsibility that that you are taking, uh, but also the fact that once you take your design, you're handing it over to an industry that then does all sorts of value engineering, you know basically many shortcuts. Um, the craftsmanship is questionable. There's so many things that come into play that to some extent, you don't really ever know that what you design was ever built or that they built something different or something that was apparently the same but not necessarily the same. So your responsibility gets mixed with the responsibility of others. So even that you might be dragged into something and have designed the perfect solution, but once it got implemented, it was implemented in a way that was maybe incorrect or that required a certain level of maintenance that after a few years it was ineffective because the maintenance was not provided. So so there's uncertainty, there's high responsibility, you know, there's, there's uh, the fact that uh, many of these buildings, you know, end up with inexperienced people. So yes, we do worry, uh, you know, quite, you know, quite a lot about the level of stress in which professionals in our discipline work. And I was talking yesterday with a person that used to be uh, a, a lecturer in Canterbury, uh, who used to be the only uh, fire engineering program in in the New Zealand, uh, Australia area. And he was telling me that he left the university after a conversation that he had with somebody, when somebody told him, uh, uh, he said, do you, re- do you recognize that you are educating every fire engineer in Australia and New Zealand and therefore somehow you're responsible for every building that gets the sign and the safety of those buildings? He oh. actually took the decision of leaving the university and stopping doing that because he felt that the responsibility was too high.
0: Yeah. And the responsibility is too high, isn't it? But yet, uh, who, who would do that? I suppose this takes us, though, to the sharing of responsibilities and the aftermath of all of these tragedies um, and the various reports, which we'll come to in a second. But obviously, in the uh, Phase 1 report of the Grenfell uh, Tower inquiry, uh, there were a lot of recommendations, 12 in fact, uh, with more to come in Phase 2, I believe, specifically relating to buildings and materials i wanted to ask you what your view is around flammable cladding uh, and particularly the the inference that several uh that i've certainly heard uh, around um, media reports and things of banning altogether any kind of combustible material from from building envelopes uh, and I, and i wonder about the way that that plays into the way we evaluate risk in these buildings. Uh, and and I went off down the garden path and started thinking about cars and the fact that we're perfectly happy to drive around in a car with some explosive fuel strapped to ourselves in a tank. Uh, but somehow that's deemed an acceptable risk. Um, what what do you think about this matter of flammable cladding, uh external envelopes on building and, and how that problem can be regulated?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the first thing I have to say is that a ban is a desperate measure. Uh, when you don't know how to fix the problem, you try to make the problem go away. Now, the the, the problem with, with banning uh, combustible materials uh, from the building envelope is that that is a solution that will never be able to be implemented. Uh, because effectively, you always will have to draw a line on how much and what is a combustible material. So, without being able to answer those two questions, you know, you will have to literally eliminate every seal, you know, every infill of glass. You know, you, there, there's the number of products that this affects is so extraordinarily large that we will have to go straight back to the 1970s. And, uh, and the problem, you know, with that is that we are not a society that is willing to tolerate, you know, the quality of these 1970s buildings when it comes to energy performance and so forth, So even in cost. So, so effectively, we are in a conundrum where we are desperately throwing words such as ban, and at the same time, we are not willing to accept the consequences of the ban. So what is going to happen is that there's going to be a compromise of definitions, and uh, and the ban might remain, but the way in which you define what's banned is going to be on the basis of some level of quantity and some definition of combustibility. And uh, so, if and the problem with that is that then you're never really addressing the real issue. As you said, we can coexist with combustible materials, with no problem at all. I mean, we cook every day in our houses. We are allowed to line our buildings in timber. You know, we can sit in cars that are carrying petrol. You know, we design processes in industry that are highly combustible and can lead to explosions. And we do that all in a safe manner. But that requires a certain level of competency and a certain level of thought. You know, and it requires a regulatory framework that actually privileges competency. And this is one of the real problems that we have with the ban, is that if you put a ban, effectively you're creating the perfect vehicle to allow incompetency to rule the market. And um, it's a very simplistic uh, approach that doesn't require people to think. And therefore you create an unfair competitive market of quality where people that have no knowledge and no competency can sign off for very cheap. You know, things are highly problematic because they have the support of the regulatory framework. So so I think, to me, <clears throat> the idea of a ban is extremely problematic. You know, the Shergill-Weird report, in as much as the Grandford Public Inquiry Phase 1 report, Dame Judith Hackett report, they all point to the same thing. At the core of this is that we have to have a proper and explicit performance assessment by individuals that have recognized an accepted level of competency. So you have to shift the focus from regulating the product, you know, regulating the design process, into regulating the individuals who are designing. If you have a high-quality engineer, and that high-quality engineer is well-versed on the ethics of the profession, then they would deliver a solution that is appropriate. And that solution could perfectly contain combustible materials. That is not necessarily the problem. As I say, we know how to exist with them. So everybody recognizes that there is a major shift that is necessary. But there's an enormous reluctance from industry to do this because the moment that you start recognizing this and you start focusing on enabling the competency of the individuals performing the engineering tasks that immediately changes completely the paradigm of design that we've had for the last 10 years, where effectively we want to standardize, simplify and eliminate competency wherever is possible. So, so I think, I think we are in a conundrum and, and the one thing that Grenfell has done that Notre Dame is not capable of doing and, uh, and the bushfires have never been able to do is effectively enable us to put the finger on the problem. At least now it's written in black and white. The problem is that we need to shift, you know, from regulating the process to regulating the people. And uh, and that is very clear for everybody. And that has become quite evident, you know, through Grenfell. So, so at least we have it in black and white.
0: Yeah. That's a very elegant formulation, Jose. And, and for those who are listening Um, The reports that Jose is referencing will be listed in the show notes, but they include Grenfell Tower Inquiry, which was released in October 2019. Uh, Also, uh, building a safer future, the so-called Hackett Report of May 2018, uh, building confidence or otherwise known as the Sharegold Weir Report of February 2018, and all starting off with uh, a Victorian cladding task force of November 2017. Um, Thanks for that view and those reports, Jose. Um, They all are, I agree with you having done a a cross-reference there, that there's a lot of similarities. Um, There's a lot of uh, discussion around competency. There's also a lot of discussion about regulation. Um, do, Do you think that regulation is the easier lever to pull for governments than this matter of competency that you are talking about? Uh,
1: Yes, it is easier to pull. And um, you you can implement regulation, and regulation has to be enacted. Uh, You cannot come up with a competent workforce from one day to the next. It's a generational problem. Uh, My position on this is that I recognize and uh, that... That the issue of competency is not one that we're going to be solving, you know, from one day to the next. The issue of competency is a transitional process that will take a generation to fully solve. All that I keep demanding is that we start the process. You know, we've been arguing this for much more than two decades, and uh, <clears throat> and at every stage, it's been considered one of those problems that is put in the box of the too difficult because it's going to take years to get a competent workforce and uh but at some point we need to start and i really think that this is this is the moment so new south wales uh just changed their uh, reg- regulations in regards to um uh certification of professionals uh in engineering and um and i think it's is a is a is a very very strong step forward. victoria is is already also modifying uh, you know, the rules. And I think in general, you can see this motion happening in Australia. And I think I would like to add to your list the Warren Center reports because these um, this, this reports explain this whole process in detail uh, in regards to fire safety. And uh, so professionalizing fire safety is um, is effectively the target and the time to do it is now. And uh, and yes, we will see the benefits, and again, long-term political will, we will see the benefits 10 years from now, fully, you know, but we are going to go in a process in which improvement is going to be a consistent and systematic way. Changes in regulation. Regulations are tools for competent professionals. So if you don't have a competent professional, you can change all the regulations you want, and it's not going to work and this is why we are in this position of taking desperate actions of doing bans all over the place because keep in mind the ban is the most extreme of regulations mm. and you only do that when you have absolutely no other choice we've gone there already so we are at the ban level so there's no further change in regulation that is going to help us you know what we need is to bring the competency level of people uh you know up so uh, that's a good
0: a good segue to the future, really. Uh, We've spoken about the past and a lot of these reports have clear recommendations into the future. I I wanna zoom out a little bit from some of those matters um, and and float an idea of sorts. Um, In a recent interview that I listened to with Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, uh, he was really outlining what you could see as a positive view of the future for what AI and machine learning could offer. And he referred to what what he called uh, complex human systems, and that is systems uh, that might include law or corrective services, such as prisons or healthcare, major pillars of our society that have developed organically over centuries, and in some cases, millennia. And it strikes me that fire safety is a really, really good example of such a complex human system where the rules are not always rational or clear. Um, And one such example of that I find is quite a funny story, really, is uh, the story that you've told me before. And I wonder if you would tell briefly for our audience again around the escape measures that uh, came about uh, and uh, the famous song, God Save the Queen. Yeah,
1: So, I mean, this is, this is interesting. So the many of the rules that we have in our building regulations are historical. And, uh, and the one that you mentioned is every uh, required travel distance. The, so the maximum travel distances by which we design the length of corridors and rooms and so forth in every building is based on this principle that you should be capable of evacuating everybody in a building within a period of two and a half minutes. And, uh, and so around the world, and this, this basically works, you know, from New York all the way to Sydney, uh, around the world, we use the same framework. And the framework uh, came, you know, from uh, a fire that happened at the Empire Theatre in, in Edinburgh in the early uh, 20th century, you know, where a magician said, uh, called the Great Lafayette set the stage on fire. And uh, at the moment that he, he set the stage on fire, that started a massive uh, event. And, uh, and the, at the time, uh, the music was provided by an orchestra. And the orchestra director decided that the best way to get people to stand up and move was if the orchestra started playing, at the time, the God Save the King. And uh, so he played the God Save the King. Everybody evacuated the hall. And, and effectively, that gave the first measurable uh, estimate of what is the time for a safe evacuation. And uh, so then they measured the length of the God Save the King, and it was approximately two and a half minutes. That got embedded in regulation, and uh, and and it, it got carried since the early 19, uh, 20th century. It got carried in into all regulations, and now it's at the core of everything that we call a maximum egress distance. So that's what we have right now. So now then you have on the other side, the CEO of Google, okay? And he's talking about using artificial intelligence and all these incredibly complex tools, the data analytics and so forth. And we recognize that all these tools have the capability of delivering a much greater understanding of the event. You know, it is clear that if, you know, uh, uh, an artificial intelligence or data analytics tool is a statistical tool that takes data and information and converts it into usable information. In other words, allows you to very rapidly and very effectively use massive amounts of data by means of statistics to create a story. And that story enables you then to make decisions. Okay? The problem is that now the tool is incredibly complicated and the tool has a lot of limitations and can send you because it's it's a black box. So it can send you in completely the wrong direction. Okay, now think that the type of professionals that we have right now dealing with fire safety are the type of professionals that operate with tools of a level of rudimentary nature as the God save the King. And now you want this same type of person to be able to understand the limitations of an incredibly complex black box so that they can actually deliver the story that is necessary to be able to determine uh, you know, the, 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 the actions to be taken. You know, I, I, I gave a presentation at an insurance company uh, not that long ago where I explicitly demonstrated why fire was one of the most challenging processes for any data analytics or artificial intelligence activity because the nature of the physical process is such that it is not amenable to any of these tools. It has every possible hurdle or problem that you could imagine, you know, to be able to use this type of tools. So the level of competency of the people that would manage those tools has to be extraordinary. So unless we change the paradigm and we actually provide a competency level that is consistent with the improvement and complexity of the tools. And when I say tools, I'm talking about cladding, I'm talking about artificial intelligence, I'm talking about all the incredibly complex systems, you know, complex materials like cross laminated timber. All these things are incredibly complex systems. And AI is an incredibly complex system. So you need a professional that has the same level of competency that is consistent with the complexity of the tools.
0: I I think, Jose, there's certainly, uh, and that's the way that Eric Schmidt meant it, there's certainly a very technological outcome to that statement. Um, I I personally have the view that, you know, an over-reliance on technology in a situation like this uh, can lead to really poor outcomes as well. I believe there was, for example, in Notre Dame, an incredibly sophisticated, if not, if a little antiquated, but sophisticated electronic system. But there was no one there who could read it and understand exactly what a light going off in, in, in the roof meant. Um, So one of the opportunities I see though, in that statement is the idea that we might rethink buildings and fire safety from the ground up unencumbered as it were by the history unencumbered by uh, not God save the Queen, but God save the King, as it were. Uh, do you think there is merit in this approach or do you hold firm and strong on the collective knowledge and the continuity of knowledge that we have from the past?
1: Uh, no, no, no. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that, that, you know, we... You see, the the continuity and the collective knowledge would be appropriate if fire safety engineers were the drivers of that evolution and of building design. Uh, the way fire safety engineering has evolved has been in response to others creating new technology, creating new designs, creating new challenges. So basically, it's, a re- it's been integrally a responsive field in which you've always been responding to the new thing that came up. And as a function of the new thing that came up and the failure that happened, the process of forensics and design by disaster occurred, we learned something and we responded. So there's no coherence to the process. Now, what has happened in the last 30 years is that these changes have accelerated and they have accelerated at a rate that basically have taken off and fire safety engineering has fallen behind uh, so much that now there is a complete dislocation between the complexities of the technologies that are implemented in buildings and our capability of addressing them in a coherent way. Now, revisiting the whole process, starting from first principles, bringing fundamental knowledge into the problem, not this sort of responsive factual knowledge uh, like like the maximum egress distances. And coming back from first principles is going to effectively be the only possible solution to this problem now the the reason why there's an element of reluctance to go in that direction is because the moment that you start doing that you are going to recognize that today we are designing buildings that cannot be built safely and we're building buildings that are inherently unsafe because either they rely too much on craftsmanship and so forth detailing on an absence of performance and so forth and once we build these buildings that are inherently unsafe, you know, we have no capability of maintaining them. So they deteriorate to an a even worse level of performance. So, so basically, we're designing buildings that cannot be built and we're building buildings that cannot be maintained. So the conclusion is inevitably going to be that we have to go back to some extent into simpler systems Systems that maybe for other functionalities like energy are not going to be as performant. You know, but nevertheless are going to remain within the bounds of quantifiable safety. And uh, and so that recognition that we went astray and we went too far is going to be part of the process. And they're going to have there there's going to have to be a step back. And that step back is not going to be a ban is going to be a rational step back that emerges from a comprehensive and logic understanding of how you implement safety in the building from first principles. And uh, and and there is an enormous uncomfort with that because nobody really knows how much back you have to go and how much this is going to imply in regards to retrofit. I mean, look at the cost of the cladding replacement programs. It's in the billions. Yeah. You know, and it's a global problem. So the moment that we do this and we recognize that a lot of the systems, you know, are fundamentally unsafe, and we have to take one step back, there is a cost associated to that. And I think the uncertainty of what that cost is going to be and the potential for it to be of massive magnitude is one of the things that is keeping the industry from being engaged in this process uh, of revisiting the problem on first principles. And this is where I think the role of government becomes a crucial uh, component of the process.
0: Thanks, Jose. It's it's always completely stimulating to hear you talk. And it's one of the things I've learned about uh, your method, as it were, is this taking us back to first principles in um, a very erudite view of, of what the problem is uh, and, in some degree, one of the things I think I've learned from you is is learning uh, to, to not treat the symptoms, but to really treat the problems. And I, and I really appreciate that. And in wrapping up now, I, I want to sort of reveal to you that I've got this secret plan that's um, perhaps not so secret now to get you to write a popular book on fire and to <laughs> to document many of these really, really interesting cases. Uh, now I've certainly got a couple of ideas for the title, but i want you to consider what you think you would call your popular airport book.
1: Yeah, this is a, you know, when I've been thinking about this for many years, I mean, I've been thinking that, that there has to be a book that makes people understand, um, and you know, what fire really is, is all about. And, uh, so the, the title that has been going through my mind, but I know, I know it's not the kind of title that sells. <laughs> but um but but but, but nevertheless it encompasses the philosophy so i'm not looking at it from a marketing perspective i'm looking at it from a philosophical perspective so i i personally
0: will name the book knowing fire i like it i like it. it's better than mine it's better than mine i can i i'm, I'm not going to reveal to you what mine was uh anymore because i, I like knowing fire i like that um Thanks, Jose. Um, I want to wrap up now and say that uh, not many people, I think, in our field can claim that the work they do saves lives, but you are definitely one of them. Um, So keep up the good work Um, and thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, I'd like to thank our audience for listening and you'll find links to the articles and reports that we mentioned in this podcast in the show notes. And until next time, thank you, Jose, and goodbye.
1: Thank you very much.